Well, good morning and welcome on this Spring Forward Sunday. You're all here, that's good. I don't know about you, but in our house we celebrate with an extra cup of coffee. Uh, if you missed yours, there will be some outside of the coffee station after the service. My name is David Wolin. I serve on the preaching team and as an elder here at New Covenant. And today we're continuing our series, uh, The King We Need, taking us through First and Second Samuel. And today we'll be in First Samuel chapter 7, if you want to turn there in your Bible. Or in the Pew Bibles, in the seats in front of you, it's on page 238. So, a few days ago, uh, I was watching a video clip recorded very recently on the streets of Kiev in Ukraine. A Christian broadcaster that I work with was asking random people as they were passing by on the streets a couple of questions. He was asking how the invasion by Russia and the suffering of one year of war had affected the way that they view and relate to God. And the responses, they were all over the map. You would expect that. But I was very struck by one conversation in particular that he had with an older woman. In Ukrainian, he asked, have you noticed yourself turning to God more since the war? She answered, Yes, every day. I pray that everything would be okay, that everyone would be healthy and alive. The boys on the front lines and the people near to me, because, well, what else can I do? And then he said, if you could ask God a question, what would you ask? And there was a long pause. And you could hear the emotion in her voice. She stammered out, Why isn't he helping us more? So that things would go better. So that everyone would still be alive. And her eyes just welled up with tears and she turned and walked away. Why isn't God helping us more? That's an honest question. And I don't think it's lacking in faith. I think any one of us might have asked that question, were we in her place? And for that matter, don't we? Don't we ask that question sometimes? Whether because of disappointment or loss or hurt, even tragedy. Don't sometimes we look to the heavens and just cry out, God, where are you? Don't you see me? Do you see my hurt? Why aren't you doing more to help? Well, our passage today drops us into just such a moment in the history of Israel. And as this story unfolds, we'll see how God was working. The progression of this story follows a cadence of grace. And the more time you spend in God's Word, the more familiar that cadence of grace becomes. It's almost like a musical chord progression that repeats throughout the Bible and recalls to mind a melody that just gets more complex and beautiful as you go. And over time, that gets into our hearts and into our heads, and we begin, we begin to find our our hearts tuned to hear it better. 
we may even start to recognize that cadence of grace in our own lives as God works in us and those around us. So let's get into the story. The prophet Samuel. He's the most significant prophet in the history of Israel since Moses. And just like God had used Moses as a bridge between two eras, the time of captivity and slavery in Egypt all the way to the promised land, so Samuel was being also used by God to bridge between two eras, the time of judges and the time of kings. But before Samuel becomes kingmaker, he was Israel's prophet and foremost leader and the last of the judges. But during his day, that did not mean that Israel was kingless. They simply didn't have a king like the other nations did. But God was their king. He always had been. But here's the thing. The knowledge of God, faith in God, allegiance to God, that does not pass from one generation to the next like DNA. It didn't work that way back then. It doesn't work that way now either. And Samuel was born at a low point. When he was still a child, the, Isra- the leaders of Israel had sought to use the Ark of the Covenant like a weapon, bringing it with them into battle with the Philistines to assure their victory. They had not sought the Lord in any way. They had simply tried to use him. And then they learned something about the wrath of God when they treated God's holiness with contempt. And so they were crushed in battle. The loss was very great. The ark was lost. The Philistines who then possessed it for a few months also learned something about treating the holiness of God with contempt and were all too glad for that ark to go back to Israel. And that's where the story ends in chapter 6 leading into chapter 7 today. So Israel's sin then had been exposed, but did Israel repent? Did they humble themselves before the Lord and begin to seek him? Our story picks up in the second half of verse 2. A long time passed, some 20 years. And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And let's stop right there. Sometimes in Scripture we just gloss over sentences like that. But that's a long time. 20 years. That's the difference between a newborn and an adult. And for that matter, last time we heard anything about Samuel was three chapters ago when he was still a child. Now Samuel's grown up, and so have the children of, his, of that generation. They've risen up to take their parents' place, but since childhood, all that generation has ever known is life under the thumb of the Philistines. What was that like? Well, later on in Samuel, we learn that their oppressors had outlawed the blacksmith trade in Israel to ensure they would never have any weapons to fight back with. They were taxed to the max and were left with barely enough to survive. They'd been reduced to basically a vassal serfdom under the Philistines. But here in verse 2, there was some hope or at least the seeds of some hope. Did you see it? It says, Israel lamented after the Lord. That's the ESV translation. The Christian Standard Bible, CSB, says the whole house of Israel longed after 
the Lord. That could be the beginning of a good thing, couldn't it? The Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 7 that godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Repentance that leads to godliness. Whereas worldly grief produces death. So which type of sorrow did Israel have as they were lamenting after the Lord? Were they only sorry about the consequences they were suffering or was their lament the kind that leads to repentance? Well, Samuel wants to know too. So he says to all the house of Israel in verse 3, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Asherah from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hands of the Philistines. Now, an Ashtoreth was a a statuette of the goddess Ashtoreth, who was worshipped by the various people of Canaan. And for them, Ashtoreth was the counterpart to, to Baal, the supreme deity. But Samuel said to put them away. What does that tell us? Even though Israel had been lamenting after the Lord, they had never truly repented. And that brings us to our first point. True repentance is tangible and undivided. And the tangible part is pretty obvious. Israel, throw away your idols. Get rid of them. What could be so hard about that? After all, the Ten Commandments begin like this. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything. And for Old Testament Jews, those words should have been as familiar as John 3.16 is for us today. And yet, the majority of Israel, so much so that Samuel could speak to them corporately as one group, they had carved out protected places for this kind of sin. Protected places in their hearts, in their homes, and even publicly. And when you do that, when you create a safe harbor for sin, and instead of fighting against it, you protect it, that impacts your relationship with God if you have one. Because the whole thing is based on a lie. That's fake repentance, Your affections are divided. But for most of us, carved image idolatry seems pretty foreign and kind of hard to relate to, doesn't it? Why did Israel struggle so much with this? I think there are several layers to this, and we could talk about how there was a sexual aspect to the ritual public worship of Ashtoreth. That's significant. We could talk about how, in other parts of the Bible, we see how when people open up their hearts to this kind of darkness, there's a demonic influence that happens that grips and binds people. I think these things were certainly at play, but there's something insidiously subtle that I really want to draw our attention to. Because you see, in idol worship, just in general, there's an, if I do this, then you have to do that type of approach to the supernatural. 
in idol worship rather than submitting to the Lord of creation, you make gods out of created things, believing that these gods can be manipulated or appeased so that you can get whatever it is you want. And that right there, that heart set, is the crossover. Because in fact, that's exactly what Israel's leaders had already been doing way back in chapter 4. When they faced that big battle with the mighty Philistine army, they decided to go get the ark and bring it with them into battle. Were they seeking God then? No. They were trying to use God as they imagined him to their own ends. Do we do that today? This impulse has coursed through the veins of every generation since Adam and Eve. In fact, today, in this cultural moment of post-Christian America, there's a modern version of this happening all around us. It happens every time someone takes God or the things of God and then uses them like a tool or a prop, a means to their own end, while at the same time are not bowing in submission to the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this can show up also in just the privacy of our own hearts. Maybe when we pray, we might, rather than really be seeking the will of God, we might be trying to make a deal with him. God, if I do this, then you do that. Or we think, if I can just do enough good, or if I can keep from sinning in those really bad ways, then God surely would let me have that or bless me in some way or keep that bad thing out there from happening. It's sort of like a Christianized karma. Brothers and sisters, these are just a couple forms that 21st century idolatry takes place. There's a whole, there's a whole lot of others, but these ones masquerade as Christian faith. But what does God do when his people drift away from him into some form of idolatry? What's his heart? Well, I think here in 1 Samuel 7, we have an illustration of what God does. He uses hard circumstances and the consequences of our own actions to create a depth of sorrow and lament. And sometimes it takes a really long, long time to work. But our patient God very slowly uses it to erode away the luster of our sinful affections. And that erosion begins to carve out a hollow place in our hearts. Like a channel through which godly sorrow can begin to flow. And if it's that godly sorrow that leads to repentance, then that hollow place can also be filled with faith as God woos us back to himself and takes his rightful place as our heart's greatest affection. And if, if God can use hardship and suffering to accomplish that, then don't we already have one good answer to the question, God, why aren't you helping more? What if he is helping? What if he is helping? This was true in Israel, because now, 20 years later, now they were ready to rid themselves of those idols and turn to the Lord with full and undivided hearts. So picking up at verse 4. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord 
only. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. You know, we might think that their repentance would have been enough. That really all that we need is repentance to make us right with God. But in fact, that's not entirely true. Repentance is vital, definitely, yes. It's a preconditioned a precondition to God's deliverance, but it's not enough. And this brings us to our second point. There is no deliverance without repentance, but repentance alone cannot accomplish deliverance. Repentance alone cannot accomplish deliverance. So individually, Privately, the people of Israel had rid themselves of their idols. Now, corporately, Israel is confessing their sin together. And this is extraordinary. This kind of thing doesn't just happen. This isn't an event you can plan. We're talking about a massive working of God across an entire people all at once. There's a word for that. This is an ancient revival. And the pouring out of water and the fasting, those are all symbolic of their hearts before God, emptied out, not manipulating him, but turning toward him and demonstrating in a tangible way that their dependence is completely now on him. So let's keep going in verse 7. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel, and when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines, and for really good reason. They likely had few weapons to fight with. Twenty years without a blacksmith in the ancient world will do that. But also, their faith was small. This is exactly where this new generation and the one that came before parted ways. Because it's not the size of your faith or its quality that saves you. It's the strength of the one in whom you have placed that faith. I love the way that Ralph, Dale Ralph Davis expresses this. He writes, Genuine repentance is the proper preparation for God's mercy. Not that repentance coerces such mercy. There is no merit in such repentance, but there is no saving help without such repentance. Repentance is not the cause, but only the condition of Yahweh's deliverance. So back in chapter 4, when the last generation was desperate and were facing the Philistine army, what did they do? All right, do this for me. Would you flip back in your Bibles to chapter 4? This, this is worth looking at. I want you to see this with your eyes. 
chapter 4, middle of verse 3. You can see it right there in the text. At that time, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. All right, now flip back to chapter 7, verse 8. No one in this generation said, hey, wait a minute, remember the ark? It's over at Abinadab's place. Quick, someone go get it. That thing's really powerful. They didn't do that. In verse 8, the people of Israel said to Samuel, do not cease to cry out to the Lord, our God, for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. Church, there is no deliverance without repentance, but repentance alone cannot accomplish deliverance. And right here is where we can begin to hear the cadence of God's grace as we come to point number three. And I'll give this point in three bullets, but starting with the first one. God saves repentant people through a mediator. God's people were going to need someone to represent them before God. And God knew that. He'd known that 20 years before when he called Samuel there in the temple as a child. And God graciously called Samuel for this moment and for many others yet to come. The people of Israel, their faith was tiny. In a sense, they were like baby believers. Their faith had been untested, and their knowledge of God was small, but none of that posed any problem whatsoever for God. But they still needed someone to speak the words of God to them and to represent and intercede for them before God on their behalf. And so the complete picture is this. God saves repentant people through a mediator who intercedes on their behalf and makes atonement for their sin. And all of these are about to happen right here. But when we talk about atonement, maybe it would help to think about atonement first on a human level, just so we can understand it maybe a little more intuitively. So in our home, Marcy and I have three children, and conflicts are common, as they are in all families. But when one child sins against another, maybe by taking their toy, what's required to make things right? This isn't complicated. All that's required is repentance in the form of a heartfelt apology and giving the toy back. But what if rather than just taking the toy, that child had taken it and thrown it down over the banister and it had shattered on the floor beneath? A simple apology and handing back the pieces of a broken toy wouldn't be enough, would it? Somehow that child needs to pay for what they've destroyed. Because without this, the relationship can't be restored. It wouldn't be made right. So the atonement of our sin before God is a little more like the latter. But it's infinitely more serious, complex, and grievous But that's not because our sin is infinite. It's because the one we've sinned against is infinite in all of his holiness and his perfections. 
He's the maker and the sustainer of all creation. In him, we live and move and have our being. Without his constant sustaining power, we would not be able to even exist from moment to moment. And our sin, which offends his holy character and deserves his wrath, also separates us from the one who himself called himself the way, the truth, and the life. He is life. And what's it called to be separated from life? That's called death. And the Bible states it plainly, the wages of sin is death. And so there's this pattern of blood sacrifice which is found all the way back in the first chapters of Genesis and then winds its way through all the Old Testament, formalized before Moses at Sinai and continuing on. It's God intentionally showing us that his intention is to save us. He's graciously allowing a substitute for sin, for the sins of humanity and the death that that sin deserves. He's allowing for that guilt to be borne by another. God's intention toward humanity is gracious. Full, complete atonement, total restoration, that has always been his plan for those who would seek him. So note the detail of what comes next in verse 9. Note the detail of what's here. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack, but the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below Beth Car. The detail we're provided here is amazing. Right in the midst of this moment of crisis, it just so happened that a nursing lamb was right there for Samuel to offer up before God on behalf of the people. And how long did it take for God to respond? It was instant, immediate. Just as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, God acted independently with no help from Israel or anyone else, and he thundered from heaven. Listen to these words from Psalm 77. This is a psalm reflecting back on the many ways and times that God over and over and over and over again saved his people. I'm just going to skim over the top of this psalm, reading some of the verses. I cry aloud to the Lord, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. I said, will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? And then it ends. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. You led your people like a flock. 
And the Lord is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And this cadence of grace can be heard like a melody throughout the whole history of salvation. And it's right here in 1 Samuel 7. Repentance, a mediator sent by God who intercedes on behalf of his people and makes atonement on their behalf. It's not just how God saved people in this moment. It foreshadows the fact that the cross of Christ was God's gracious plan from the very beginning, and every page of Scripture is intended to point us to Him. But rarely do we see such a complete picture painted for us in such concise detail. So do you remember how John the Baptist was the forerunner to the ministry of Jesus? What was his role? What was his role in God's plan of salvation John the Baptist was used to bring people in mass to the point of repentance. That was his ministry. But because there is no deliverance without repentance, repentance alone cannot accomplish deliverance. John the Baptist lifted up his head when he saw Christ approaching. And what did he say? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Like Samuel, Jesus was the mediator standing in the role of both prophet and priest. But unlike Samuel, Jesus didn't offer up a sacrifice on behalf of the people. He became the sacrifice. Jesus did it all. The king of kings became our mediator, prophet, priest, and sacrifice which is why God's cadence of grace throughout Scripture culminates in a crescendo at the cross where the death was paid finally once and for all. I really like how John Calvin puts it. He writes, In Christ there was a new and different order in which the same one was to be both priest and sacrifice. This was because no other satisfaction adequate for our sins and no man worthy to offer to God the only begotten Son could be found. Christ did it all. And so Jesus, as priest, offered up himself as sacrifice. And like Israel, we receive those benefits entirely by faith because it's by the power of God that all of this was accomplished, not of our own works. We simply receive it by faith and draw near in repentance, believing. Friends, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the witness of the word of God from beginning to end. It's the storyline of history, and it's the testimony of every person who professes Christ and loves and follows him, every man, woman, and child. But in this story, there's more. God rescued Israel that day. The victory was very great. And then Samuel did something really interesting. So let's read in verse 12. It says, Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen, And called its name Ebenezer, for he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. What was he doing? Well, I'll summarize this in the final point for today. God's delivered people 
regularly recall and recount God's mighty works. So practically speaking, Samuel was just following the pattern already set by Joshua. Do you remember that? After the people of Israel had crossed over Jordan on dry ground, a miracle of God, they had, he had built up a stone, a monument of stones, 12 stones for the 12 tribes of Israel, and the purpose of it was to recall what God had done. Well, Samuel's doing the same thing, except right here, there's a profound depth of meaning that's specific to this moment. The name Ebenezer meant stone of help. But Samuel didn't come up with that on his own out of the blue. Back on that disastrous day, 20 years prior, when Israel had been defeated before the Philistines, that story began with these words. Now, Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer. For Israel, the place called Ebenezer, stone of help, must have seemed like the ultimate in cruel irony. Stone of help? Where was God on that day? The stone of help didn't show. And every time this generation had ever heard the name Ebenezer, maybe they thought something like, why didn't God help us? Ebenezer was the place of defeat. Now, the place where Samuel raised this stone was actually a different location, but that didn't matter. He wanted to correct and reframe Israel's memory of that day because, in fact, even then and the 20 years prior, God was helping them in the way they needed it most. And that is something you can only see by God's grace looking backward. And so this new Ebenezer eclipses the previous one. And now when Israel hears the name Ebenezer, they think, truly, our God is a stone of help. And they'll recall Samuel's words spoken on that spot. Till now, the Lord has helped us. So what about us? What about us, the people of God here at New Covenant Bible Church? How has the Lord helped us? There's a time and a place for churches to do this corporately, to raise an Ebenezer and to look back, recalling how God was working through difficulty. Now, for those of us who weren't here, or especially if you're relatively new to this church, you may not know that New Covenant Bible Church was actually born in a season of great difficulty and trial that culminated in the merging of two different church bodies to form one new body. And this building that we're meeting in is far older than the church. Our church is 12 years old. And there's a covenant framed and hanging out on the wall outside the sanctuary, which was signed by all members on the day when two separate bodies exited the building and went out into the parking lot and mingled together and then walked back in as one new body, one new church. And that covenant is hanging there as an Ebenezer of sorts, of sorts to remind us that till now, the Lord has helped us. 
And he's not finished with us either. To me, that Ebenezer is so encouraging and helpful to recall because these last years, they've been tough. The pandemic years were really, really hard in a lot of different ways, especially for churches. But the Lord has helped us. And this past year, in a season of drawn-out transition in leadership, it won't be like this forever, but we're still in this moment in between. But can't we say this much? Till now, the Lord has helped us. And what about your life? How has the Lord helped you? Can you look back and hear God's cadence of grace in your own story? How has God helped you and your family? What reminders have you given to yourself to recall to your mind the goodness and faithfulness of God at work? We're so forgetful. We're so prone to wander and get discouraged and to fall away from the Lord. That happens in seasons of prosperity and difficulty. And so we need to regularly recall to mind what God has done and to remember that we were not forgotten. He has not forgotten us now. He can and will help us again. He's helping us right now. As for Samuel, I'm just going to summarize the remaining verses of 13 through 17. These verses are basically a fast forward of the decades of leadership and ministry for Samuel. And these are stories the Bible doesn't contain. We simply know that Samuel was faithful to the Lord and he judged Israel for decades and God was faithful to Israel and his hand was with them and against the Philistines throughout. And by chapter 8, which we'll get to next week, Samuel is an old man. So this one story today represents the entirety of his ministry until he became the kingmaker. So... I'd like to finish the message today by reading to you a few of the verses I skipped earlier in Psalm 77. Listen to this. The psalmist writes, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. And he has made his might known among us as well. Will you pray with me?